You're listening to the Choose to Be podcast with host Alana Gordon and Amy Wolsey. As you join us each week, we will provide you with tools, resources, and knowledge to help you navigate your healing journey. Choose recovery, choose healing, choose you. Welcome to the Choose to Be podcast. We have a special episode for you today and are thrilled to have joining us Dr. Kenneth M. Adams. Dr. Adams began his professional career in 1981 treating children, adolescents, and their families. And in 1985, he began private practice with the Children of Alcoholic Parents Program. It's an outpatient program for the treatment of adults who had grown up in alcoholic families. It was there that he began to notice that many of these clients had addictions and enmeshment issues. He is a leading expert in that subject of enmeshment. Two of his primary specials today, enmeshment and addiction. He wrote his first professional article in 1987 on covert incest and sex addiction in alcoholic families and has since written four books and numerous peer review articles. So Dr. Adams maintains right now his clinical practice and directorship at Kenneth M. Adams and Associates. He is a certified sex addiction therapist, a CSAT supervisor, and a CSAT trainer facilitator, as well as an EMDR practitioner. As an esteemed author, Dr. Adams has gone on to co-edit the clinical management of sex addiction with Dr. Carnes and received an enthusiastic endorsement from him of his book, When He's Married to Mom, which we are crossing our fingers that Dr. Adams will come back and do another episode with us talking about that amazing book and his latest groundbreaking book that he co-authored. And what we're discussing today is A Light in the Dark, The Hidden Legacy of Adult Children of Sex Addicts, where they detail the unique issues that are experienced by adult children who grew up with a sexually addicted parent. This book offers a path to unburden their shameful legacy and embrace sexuality and intimacy without the intrusion or constraints from the past. Adult children who grew up with a parent who had a sexual addiction can be left confused, ashamed, and mistrustful regarding the feelings and boundaries surrounding sex, love, and intimacy. His website link will be in our show notes for you. We are so honored to have you joining us today, Dr. Adams. Thank you for being here. Nice to be here with you too. Well, we, Amy and I have actually been looking forward to this from the moment that we touched base with your assistant. We have been talking about how beneficial this will be for our listeners and how this is an area that just is absolutely not being addressed and touched. Mm -hmm. And the generational patterns that I see with my clients, that I see in my own personal life, the fact that you're doing this work is so impactful. And I was in the CSAT training that you did in January. Oh, you were? I thought you were, I thought you looked familiar to me. <laughs> and well, and when you got talking about this particular topic, I instantly downloaded the book, started reading. Mm. And actually, I also ordered your book on the mother enmeshment. And mm. I would love at some point to bring you back for part two on that. Of course. Sure. But I think it would be really beneficial for our listeners who have had, haven't had exposure yet, haven't read the book, mm -hmm. to know just a little bit about what drove you in particular to start this work and start branching out the betrayal trauma sexual addiction model. Mm. Yeah, there's a long story, and I'll give you the short story there. Um, so uh, the, the book comes from both my personal journey as an adult child of an alcoholic and a sex-addicted parent. And my professional work, you know, so uh, let's start primarily with the professional. So the good news is, is that the two models that we have emerged in sex addiction, the addiction model and the partner trauma model, really have, have really informed us well. And they've kind of reached their ceiling. There's nothing really new happening. They're just being, the models are being reinforced and tweaked. And, you know, more people are designing pieces that are a little bit nuance. But the truth of the matter is we hit a ceiling here and it happens to all fields, which is the good news, right? So now the energy and the time can be directed elsewhere and money and research and so forth. So that's been true for me. I started, you know, I've had this book for adult children of sex addicts in my head for, I don't know, 20 years. 
had it framed in my mind. But I also realized that there's been very little written about it. There's been a couple of attempts to, there's been one article, one blog post, it's just really not much at all. And I realized that in my own story that I was carrying shame that had nothing to do with my behavior, had everything to do with my father's behavior. And I thought to myself, well, I'm going to write a book. I'm going to need to tell my story. If I'm going to ask the reader to tell their story, I think I should tell mine. So I wasn't going to do that alone. So that's why the book took 20 years. because I couldn't find anybody to write with me. So that two of my colleagues were brave enough and courageous enough to join me. And so we, Mary Meyer, Dr. Mary Meyer and Colia Vandegaard were the co-authors here. And so we all told us So the first three chapters are our personal stories. And that was a bit of a risk for me professionally, but I'm at a point in my career as I don't, I frankly don't really care what people think anymore. So they can, they can have whatever reactions they want. And, you know, I was, I was gentle with my parents and, and yet I was candid about generally what happened. I, and I didn't give all the details. Of course, I didn't want to turn into some sordid tale, right? But I wanted to tell enough that people could feel what happened in my story. It, my conclusion, and I wrote it sort of, when I wrote that story, I realized, oh my God, you know, I, I ended my story in the book talking about watching my parents after their divorce, occasionally around the kitchen table, my father would visit, my, they'd be having dinner. And I later found love letters between them and they were madly in love. And I realized it was the addiction that robbed our family. It was not my father per se, although he was responsible and never quite got into any recovery till later in life a little bit in AA. And uh, my mother never really got recovery except minimally in Al-Anon. And both, of, when they both were in there though, it was really profound. I can still remember being around them and they were different when they worked in those programs. They were more present. It was really stunning. I can still feel their presence differently. That's really where the book came from. It was an emergence of the right timing professionally and the right timing personally for me. And I think that professionally, I think it's time that we really look at the story, not through the eyes of the addict or through the eyes of the partner, but it's time to look at the story, the system through the eyes of the adult child. So our book is adult child sensitive. We purposely did not try to merge it with other models. And we make that, and I wrote the introduction and I made that case in the introduction. We purposely wanted this to be their story, not hijacked by another model. And so one of the, so over the years, adult children of sex addicts largely have been consumed or assumed underneath the partner trauma model, for example. It's assumed that the children have the same story as the partner. Now that some of that's just because all the energy and time has been given to the addict and the partner who have needed that. But the truth is they're not the same story. There's a, so there's a shared variance, but it's, it's only shared to a certain degree. And so our book delineates the adult child story from their perspective and separates it out from the partner and the addict. And so there's, I think there's some, and I have some, I also put together a survey that you guys know about which I'm very excited by. I have over 100 responses, which is nice. You know, 100 the the mark you want to have, and it's minimally 100 people, you know, before you can start talking. And there's some interesting percentages. And of course, not surprising, most of them are saying, look at the addict's behavior was the primary agent in causing me problems. But my mother or father's or the spouse's use of me to weaponize against my father also was a problem. So we've got some We've got some voices from the past speaking up that need to be paid attention to. So I'm happy to walk through any of all that as you, as you need. So I'll turn it back over to you. But that's kind of the background. I'm excited to see, you know, kind of what kind of responses we get. It's nice to be here with you because I haven't had, I've had one opportunity to talk about it to a small group of recovering sex addicts. Interesting is that a couple of the guys started sobbing. Because they realize as hard as they work their butts off to recover from their shame and make amends, that all of their shame wasn't their behavior. They all, some of the shame doesn't, isn't mine. So it was an aha moment for them. 
and which I was glad to see because that's been my suspicion that in the sex that the there's also another model that sort of sort of overshadows the adult child and that's a sex addiction model. There's probably a large percentage of adult children of sex addicts who become sex addicts. And we write about that in our in our book. And they really need to parse out whose shame they're recovering from and whose amends making the right amends because these addicts are never getting over their shame in spite of their recovery. That's because it's not their shame, right? Mm. It, although they have repeated it, right? They have acted it out. And, to, and So it's been interesting to watch it. I was uh, surprised to see that in that. I'm not surprised, but I was taken back by, by that too. So I'll be interested in how partners respond as well. Going yeah. This is so interesting to me what you just said there, that some of the shame they can't get past because it's not their shame. Mm. And I had just finished reading, it didn't start with you right before I started your book. So my brain was already in that place. And I felt like this book just so perfectly enhances specifically what these, these adult children are dealing with, taking on some of the shame or responsibility from their parents' choices. And I, it's, I just want to sit with that for a minute. It's just mm -hmm. really impactful. Yeah, yeah. Well I, know, well, I know for myself, just in my own healing journey, uh, starting to tap into that generational trauma and carrying on. And I'll, Dr. Adams, I'm very vulnerable on our podcast. It's like, I, am, I have no problem talking about my own therapy sessions. And I appreciate your vulnerability in your book. A couple of weeks ago, I processed in my session with DVR fear, generational fear. And it was such a different experience to release that yeah. in session and feel that leave my body and know that it wasn't mine to begin with. I just want to speak to that because I think that as I'm tapping into it and understanding more of that generational shame or whatever emotion you're carrying. Mm -hmm. uh, there, there really was a significant amount of release in my physical body, physiologically, right here in my neck as I watched that leave. And it was like taking my healing to that next level. And it was, it's so fascinating. So I love what you're saying there. And I think that a lot of times when people hit that wall of recovery, we're like, I'm doing all the things. I think this is a piece to get curious about. And hopefully therapists also are getting more curious yeah. about that too. Well, you know, I wonder if it might be helpful for your listeners for us to talk briefly, just what, how that sexual shame is, is carried in this sexually addicted family and how it transfers and how a second, first, a second generation doesn't need to witness the household with the sex addiction to carry the shame. Cause that's the link we talk about in the book. So, yeah. it, it, so clearly you know, not surprising to most of your listeners and yourself, you know, in sexually addicted systems, you've got secrecy, you you have inappropriate behavior being exposed, you have betrayal, you have duplicity. So on one hand, you might have very rigid. So a lot of these systems have rigid, moralistic attitudes about sex, while over here, there's secrecy on it, right? So there's duplicity, mixed messages in these. So we can both have permissiveness and nobody plays by the rules. I get to do what I want, daddy or mommy. And then over here, we have the other parent shutting down sexuality as a reaction to the addict. And so the children are growing up in systems in which they're witnessing inappropriate behavior. Typically, a large percentage of the people surveyed talked about witnessing their parents fighting over the behavior. But not all of them witnessed the parents fighting, but still felt impacted. So the kids knew. There was an interesting little discrepancy in the data that the kids picked, which gives uh, another. So does that mean you should tell your children, right? There's a whole discussion there and you've got it. My advice, and I'll say it right away, is stay conservative, not, not politically, but stay conservative. The less, the better. And you don't weaponize disclosure. So that's right. That's got to be taken off the table right away. So it can't serve. It can't serve the parents. It has to serve the children. So if it's so if you're serving the children, whether children or adult children, you're going to have a better chance to make the right decision. 
if it's serving you or your grievance or your shame, I'm going to tell my kids because I feel so bad, or I'm going to tell my kids because I want them to hate their father. Those are those are invariably will be motivations that will impact the next generation. So in disclosing to children, make sure that your primary objective is to assist the child and you'll make a better decision. So in these systems, you you have you have these duplicity, you have inappropriate comments and jokes about body and gender and women or men. And so there's a lot of you know humor and sometimes nudity. And so there's a the systems are filled with with both permissiveness, control, rigidity, and complexity and duplicity. So imagine growing up in it, right? And so and you're, you know, and you're kind of leaving that system, trying to get out of there. And you're an adolescent, you have a normal sexuality emerging, but you're taking the download of all this family system around messages, you know. These families, you know, some of them view, for example, uh, discussing education, sexual education is permissive giving. You know, so we don't talk about sex, even though your father's out having affairs, we're not going to talk about sex, right? Even though you just saw your father with the neighbor, we don't talk about sex in the family. So that's trouble. So that's the shame, right? The shame is the overt addictive behavior, but all the complexities and duplicity and the effort to control that goes along with it. So that, that adult child marries, maybe, or has children, and takes that shame into their parenting. And they have kids who turn into emerging young adults, adolescents who have sexualities, and pretty soon their parents are trying to control what's normal and curious to them. And they'll go, where'd this come from? I didn't do anything wrong. So they're not even witnessing the addictive behavior and the shame is being carried down to the next generation. So that's important for your, for your listeners to understand. It's the sexual shame that comes from the system Yes, primarily the so the the offending behavior is the behavior, but then the system reaction to it, it generates its own sort of secondary pieces of shame and so forth, which is you know it's not fair for a partner or a spouse to realize that their behavior too is causing a problem, and they wouldn't be in it if they weren't reacting to the addict, but the reality is. You've got to start facing the truth for what it is, not as you would have it, right? It isn't fair, but it is the reality, right? Absolutely. So, and um, or that your kid loves your their father, and you can't stand him. It's not fair that they see him with a set of innocent eyes, and you wish they didn't. And it's not just, but it is right that they have their separate relationship with him, and that he or she, now I don't want to leave women out of the deal here because we have we have lots of women more and more who are getting hooked and doing the betraying, right? Or we've got both parents. We've got stories coming from. So that's, I wanted to give your audience that feel for the system, how the shame is carried on. Because that's, I think, the, the big message in my mind of our book. There's lots of other pieces in the book. We define the roles, the characteristics, the recovery, uh, which... I'm happy to talk about, but the shame in the 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 message in my mind to one of the takeaways is for parents for the addict to realize making amends is an ongoing process. It's not a one-time event, which doesn't mean you should prone yourself and shame yourself in front of your kids or your partner all the time. But if you sometimes there's a saying in the twelve-step program, I'm doing my living amends. That's good. And you should be. But sometimes it's a cop-out. And, you know, if you see your kid struggling, you know, um, you say, you know, I'm sorry you do. I'm sorry you're struggling. Part of that's on me. You know, you had to live through my behavior, my affairs, and it's not fair to you. I hope you know that you deserve something better. So, you know, that's an amends, right? You're you're unburdening your adult child. Same is true for partners, right? You know, I can see you, you know, reacting to your kids. You know what? That's on me. I was way too controlling. I wish I could take it back. 
And um, so take a breath, lighten up for yourself and your kids. So both the addict and the partner have an ongoing healing responsibility to their adult children in my mind. Absolutely. It's not a one-time event. I mean, if my father occasionally would have said to me when I was struggling with something, geez, I'm sorry you're going through that. That's on me. You know, you had, I mean, you've got to, you've got to take responsibility now, but you know, you, you've never should have been here. It would have meant the world to me. It would have been, it lifted the burden of shame and allowed me a better set of choices. Sure. I was still responsible for my part and on and on. So um, that's one of the takeaways that I'm learning as I get listening to adult children is that the addict and the partner have a responsibility ongoing. For their well, that was my takeaway. Honestly, as I read it the first time, it was very eye-opening for me. And I've been doing that work with my children, uh, my adult children on healing those old wounds and shame and stuff that, that I contributed to them. This gave me, reading this book gave me more insight and opportunities to do that work and uh-huh. gave me a language now that I, especially those characteristics that you I, I mean honestly I sobbed because <laughs> I read through just that first chapter of characteristics of my children and I'm like yep 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 mm-hmm. but it helps me put a language to so that I can formulate my apology so that I can say I see this is what you're experiencing and here's where it's coming from and I, I'm sorry so I Yes, you kind of have to get to that place in your own journey. I know for me as the betrayed partner, I, I've worked that and I'm in a place in my journey to be able to do that generational healing with my children. Um, yeah. I think it's a really fantastic goal for women and men to get to that place with their children. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Well, great. Brave. I just keep thinking about how a lot of our partners, what drives them in to seek help is because they get in a relationship with somebody who's in addiction or the person who's in addiction as this becomes so painful, whether because my spouse is making me or personally, what drives these adult children to go seek this help? Because I've already recommended the book to a dozen clients Mm -hmm. for themselves. And I know you have adult children. Please share this with them. But I would love to know if you've seen what drives this particular population to see that they need to do this work? Yeah, that's a good question. It, it, isn't, it isn't the acknowledgement that I grew up in a sex-addicted family. It's that I'm struggling with intimacy or I've picked somebody again who betrays me or, uh, you know, I can't stay loyal or I can't stay intimate. So it's almost always issues around intimacy, love, romance, and sex, right? That just isn't working out. I mean, that's the primary driver. But they won't go in there and say, they'll go in there and they'll be treated well from different models, right? There's a lot of, the good news about therapy right now, there's a lot of good treatment models that you can pull from. But without the right narrative, without the right framing, the light bulb doesn't go off. So when I first entered recovery personally, many, many years ago now, it was as an adult child of an alcoholic. And I remember, uh, and I didn't realize I was one, even though I knew my father sort of knew my father was an alcoholic. I mean, there was no doubt my father was an alcoholic. And uh, I remember the therapist, I told the therapist, and I went in there because I was having problems with the girlfriend. And uh, she was the one who was actually bringing in uh, another person into the deal. So uh, we were struggling. And uh, so I, she listened. And then towards the end of the session, she goes, was your father an alcoholic? I about fell off the chair. I said, how'd she know? So I felt she was and it's that, and all of a sudden, everything opened for me, that the opportunity to heal and be understood, and that's one of the takeaways that I'm uh, also wanting to share with therapists and adult children, particularly therapists, is that don't be so quick to use your favorite model. Make sure these adult children are understood from the perspective of what they're carrying first before you move into your favorite treatment techniques or models. And I'm finding that with the enmeshment therapists, ther- therapists who are trained in enmeshment and uh, same kind of thing is that they're, they're overriding this enmeshment dynamic, which, by the way, we see in the adult children too, right? It's over-involvement often between one of the kids and one of the parents. And uh, we called her or him the emotional caretaker or the surrogate spouse, is that the therapists are too quick to use their model. 
IFS or EMDR, all good stuff. I've used it all. And, and they kind of override the labeling or the, not the labeling, but the identification where the person needs to sort of really understand, oh yeah, this is where I'm coming from. This is, it's the difference between being a therapy and having a therapist, you know, get you, right? Oh, they, they got me. Versus a therapist who you know is doing some good work, but you never quite feel understood. And, you know, I've been in, I've been in both, I've been in therapy long enough to have both types of therapists. And that's the purpose of first starting with the adult child framing is that, oh, you understand where I came from. And that needs to happen long enough before you move into your favorite treatment. So that's a long way around saying to you, most people come in and they're being treated for the thing that we're talking about in the book, but nobody's labeling it. Okay. I want to speak to this because I did this as a therapist with the client. Oh, so I, um, she came to me for betrayal trauma. That's my niche. Yeah. And so we were focusing on the betrayal trauma, but as the longer we worked, it came out that there's a pattern of her own acting out outside of her marriage. And when I listened to the book and I listened to a few stories in there, light bulbs went off and I went, oh, mm-hmm. that I missed that with this client. And I want to go back and say, come back, come back. I missed this huge piece. Because it was almost like we were doing good work, but we danced around. But as a therapist, I didn't have that frame to really hone in on what was happening, not only for her with this acting out, but also how that played into her own betrayal trauma, her own choosing of her partner. There were so many layers to this that I feel like this information came in and just solidified and, and really was at the core. That I, I didn't know. So that kind of dancing around it that you talked about really resonated with me professionally. Yeah, well, I think so. thanks for sharing that. You're you're not going to be alone as a therapist around that. You know, it's happened to all of us. You know, we we know what we know and we, we learn what we learn as fast as we can. And but I'm glad that you're seeing the book in that light, because that's the purpose of, you know, one of the beauties of the recovery model of treatment or recovering the recovery model, is that there's something about telling our stories and telling our stories and people on the other side of the room or the other side of the Zoom room going, oh, yeah, that's me. You've been living my life, right? There's a power in the story and having the right narrative. And that's what you're saying, right? The, the fuller core narrative wasn't there where the light bulb would go off. And I think that's critical. I think that therapists... And the adult children who are seeking treatment need to find the right fit so they feel understood. You know, one of the, one of the, in, in the, the addiction, the sex addiction model and the partner trauma model have been so busy treating those issues that they've kind of put blinders on. And, you know, for reasons that we know that, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot to manage somebody coming into your office or dealing with it, right? There's a lot to deal with and you, You've got to go to the primary problem, right? But sometimes there's there's not been enough permission to expand the discussion, particularly, for example, in the partner trauma model has been a understandable protection against the spouse feeling blamed. Oh, it's not, you know, I didn't pick him because I grew up with a father who betrayed my mother. I'm reacting because of my husband's behavior, right? But unfortunately, that's cut off the knees of the larger story. And so I hope that your listeners will give themselves permission to expand their narrative, not to blame themselves, but to understand the the fuller picture and the fuller narrative so they can unburden the shame and have more freedom to choose where they're going. So it's it's good to hear you, both of your reactions to the book, because I haven't heard a lot. So you're you're kind of the first ones. I've had a couple of people email me. So it's the books, you know, just come out this month. So I haven't had a chance. So it's nice, to, uh, exciting. So I've been waiting for my own excitement to come around on this book. So <laughs> thank you. I'm feeling a little bit of it today. Now listening to you guys putting some pieces together, using it. Way to go. No, this is fascinating. Let's do, let's do talk about those characteristics. Are sure. you okay with that, Alana? Yeah. We talked about the shame. Another one that you talked about was how adult children of sex addicts can be uncomfortable with physical touch 
or have an excessive need for it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, That was another light bulb for me. That physical touch has a completely different meaning for you abbreviate ACSAs. You want to talk a little bit about that? Well, you know, so remember, let's put us back in the system. Let's put ourselves back in the system here. So you've got this system in which sexuality is a battleground. Right. Somebody is being excessive and someone else is trying to manage. Right. And so there's beliefs, attitudes, messages, indirect and direct going all around the system about what you should do with sexuality. So all of a sudden giving a kid a hug or a kiss or something becomes something you shouldn't or or I'm not sure I should. So I stiffen up. Right. So they we're here. Sometimes we're here stories from recovering sex addicts who purposely avoided any contact with their adult, with their adolescent daughters, right? And their adolescent daughters have felt rejected because the, the addicts didn't want to, they we were afraid. Not, not that they were focused on adolescents, but they were so shame-based that they didn't want anything to transfer. So they got rigid. So touch and, or there indeed were inappropriate hugs or massages or kisses or so forth, you know, or nudity. So all of a sudden the body and touch become something that it wasn't meant to be, right? And so either there's a phobic reaction to it or an excessive need for more that can be then sexualized, right? And then we might over-sexualize the need for touch or love. So that's where that comes from. Yeah, absolutely. I'll let you do the reading of the characteristics. So I don't, I've got him sitting here too, but something you've got him in front of you. So yes, I, do. I don't have, I, do. I don't have a member. <laughs> yes, I do. Okay. Another one is an ACSA can be extreme in their sexual attitudes. And mm-hmm. we touched on this little bit, either too permissive or too judgmental. Mm-hmm. So they have a really hard time developing that healthy approach to, to sexuality in their adult life. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's interesting. So when I, so I have these hundred responses to, to the survey and we asked in the survey, I said, I think I, do I have it here? No, I don't, I didn't print that part out, but we asked in the survey, do you judge other sexuality that's not like yours negatively? And, or do you have hold overly judgmental or moralistic attitudes about sexuality in general. And these, the answers were relatively low compared to everything else. They were like below, they're like in the 30% range, so three out of 10. And I was a little surprised by that, but then I realized that all of my 100 respondents have been in therapy. They all, so it looks like either you grew up in a family that you felt judged sexually over and you weren't going to do it to other people. Or you were in therapy long enough that you you moved away from your shame enough that you didn't judge others. So we didn't get a lot of respondents that told us that. But having said that, I do think it still lingers in those systems that you can walk out and be kind of moralistic and highbrow about somebody else's sexuality and judge somebody else, either their gender or their sexuality negatively because you, because that's a main defense against shame, right? is to blame or hold others in contempt, right? I won't face my shame if I view you negative. So that that is the reason that characteristic is. We've seen that. You were yeah. going to say something? Well, um, it, it got me thinking where I keep thinking how a lot of our clients come from really strong religious cultures that comes with its own messaging and, and often a lot of its own shame. Mm. And what I see often is some of my clients who actually have the most judgment around sexuality mm-hmm. think that they don't. And so if, it right. makes me wonder, even if in that question, mm. how they would self-reflect to be able to see what they're doing as judgment. So just my brain going. No, no, you're, you're right. I actually thought the same thing. I thought this needs to be worded differently. I don't think, so that's the thing about the survey. This is my first crack at the survey is I think some of the questions aren't definitive enough. You're right. It's not really getting at, you know, I don't see myself as judgmental, even though I really am, right? Or controlling or moralistic. Of course I'm moral, right? He's the one that's immoral, not me, right? So I don't see myself as overly moralistic. I just feel like I'm the normal one, right? 
So yes, you're right. It's it, it, I need some better questions. So as soon as I get some extra time, that's where I'm going to do is redo. No, this. well, I'm I'm not critiquing it all. Well, no, I know you're not. I'm just I'm just joking that there's so many things on my on my list of things to do. This is one of them is to redo this survey. Well, as you're talking, the information that's coming out of this survey is so instrumental, and well, this will take us off a totally different course. But at some point, I would love to hear if you are going to keep expanding this work more in this area just because. Yes. So, so I'm, I'm hoping to do some stuff for therapists on it. Um, and, uh, you know, we've got some education classes. Um, one of my associates are running, but you know, it's, I think that people will pick up on this and start doing things. And I, I, I think that we'll, we'll start seeing some treatment models. You know, when the adult children of alcoholics, so you guys are probably, both too young to know when that started, but when that, that was a big deal back in, you know, that really, that really expanded the recovery field. It was the adult children of alcoholic models and the pioneers, Claudia Black and Sharon Merkshider and so forth. And uh, it just, it just opened up the whole field of study away from just looking at the alcoholic slash addict, you know, and it, it even put the spouse in a different perspective, although they still like behind and understanding unfortunately, but I'm, I'm trying to remember, I thought I saw on your website that you are going to host some groups for people who are children of sex addicts. Is that yes, there's a three-part right? three, three educational series run by an associate of mine who's, who knows this material very well, the similar reasons we've all talked about. And uh, so I'm going to, I'm going to be part of it, but she's going to be the primary. So it's an educational format on Zoom. So we know we can't really do therapy across state lines exactly. So, you know, we have to be careful about what we deliver. So it's, it's educational with some exercises to help them walk away with a frame and a little, a little treatment kind of plan they could take to their therapist. We were talking about characteristics, but again, I'm going to highly recommend getting your book and going through those characteristics. Like I said, it was light bulb moments for me. So Dr. Adams, do you want to share those five roles that are also really, really powerful? Yes. So the other thing we did is we, we of course, borrowed from the adult children of alcoholic literature and the adult children of alcoholic literature identified roles that emerged. So when a family system is out of whack and a sexually addicted family system is in trouble, people circle the wagons in the system as a whole begins to try to patch the holes, right? And so the kids have to move out of normal developmental processes and get into roles to assist the parents and mm -hmm. assist the system. So the common one was the responsible hero in the alcoholic family. Somebody's not cutting the grass. Somebody's not bringing the money home. Somebody's not cooking. So the responsible hero child becomes the parentified child well, the, the value of learning that role is, well, wait a minute, I don't have to keep doing that. I don't have to keep marrying somebody who needs a parent, or I don't have to keep being the parent to my siblings. I get to de-roll. So there was a breath of relief and fresh air for people to understand that a role is not your identity. It's a part of you, and maybe there's pieces of it that are good, but you don't want to keep doing it. So we identified five roles. One was the moral champion and hero. This is the priest, the police officer, the pastor, the minister who says, my family doesn't have any problems. Look at me. I'm going to be the moral police of everybody. I'll tell you how to act. I'll show you what's, I'll be the self-righteous hero. So a little different twist. We have the emotional caretaker, comforter. That's not uncommon the child who feels mother or the betrayed partner's pain and tries to soothe him. They may even try to soothe the, the addict, right, during a fight. So they, it's a sensitive, temperamentally sensitive child who tunes into the pain. Unfortunately, they download that, take it into their life, and then reenact it, right? So they need to de-roll. So all of these require, say, no, 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 that's not who I am. That's my role, but I get a choice around that, right? So that's that's the general recovery role here. We also identified right along with the caretaker, a little more specific, the surrogate spouse. That's what I wrote about in Silently Seduced and When He's Married to Mom, the first two books I wrote. And that's more specific 
I'll be mommy's stable lover and boyfriend and husband because her husband, my father, is betraying her and I hate him too. So I'll listen to her problems. I'll go on dates with her. You know, he gets sort of, he or she gets lassoed into being the replacement partner. So that's a little more specific. It has the emotional caretaker to it. And then, you know, I've done a lot of work around that, and that really has to change because that's a lot of trouble for somebody. And it's not their it's not their responsibility to fill the hole. I mean, it's really not, you know. And then the other one is the addict seducer, right? It's the child who identifies with the power of the addict and says, oh, my mother is over there here being weak and helpless. I don't want nothing to do with her. I'm going to be this seductress because that's who daddy likes. And so I will become the addict, seductress, right? I don't want to be the helpless woman. I want to be the one doing the betraying. So we can get, so the addict seducer identifies with the, and, and males do that too. I just gave you an example of females because we don't talk about that. Enough. And then finally, the final role is the truth teller. This is a kid who's always in your face telling you what you're doing wrong. And sometimes they make good therapists too, you know. <laughs> and uh, and they and they unfortunately they get scapegoated, you know, and they because they continue in adulthood, so they need to learn to soften back and not be in everybody's face, you know, for their sake. Yeah, they can still say, "Hey, look at you know." So recovery means de-rolling, find which of these characteristics I feel wedded to, how have they transferred into my current life, which is its own kettle of fish to have to parse out. And then to begin to have some boundaries, say, look, if you're going to make jokes about women when I'm around here, I'm going to leave. So you don't have to, you're not trying to change the addict. You're not trying to change the system. You're Because the other thing we got here, if I can tell, I've got this statistic right in front of me, 78% of the people that we surveyed reported continuing to feel responsible to fix their family of origin. That's almost eight out of 10. Yep. So, You've got to really pull that back and say, no, no, no. Because the, the more you're wedded to trying to repair, the more you're stuck in the past, the more likely you are to replay it in the present. Yep. So, yeah, it doesn't mean you go over there and put up with things, but it means, hey, look, it, you're not trying to change dad. You're not trying to tell mom you should you should divorce dad. You know, that's not your job. Hey, look, it, you guys are going to fight. I'm going to have to leave, take the kids home. Um, if you keep talking, you know, pull that aside. Look, you keep making jokes about women in front of my kids. I'm going to have to I'm going to have to leave. So he blows up or has his fit. It doesn't really matter because you're not trying to change him. It's your limit. Right. It's your boundary. And so adult the recovering adult child of a sex addict has to learn his the characteristics that they keep repeating, the roles they're in and to begin to have self limits. I'm not going to, and then to parse out the bigger picture, which really needs to be done in therapy, I believe, is what is my sexuality? What is my values around body, gender, sexuality, and versus what am I caring for my families? You know, and, and to some degree, it's it's not like you can flip a switch on that stuff, right? I mean, the truth is, this stuff you you drag it around and it stays with you, but you can begin to lighten the load. You begin to open up to new possibilities. You get to be a choice maker in some of your own sexual and romantic choices. So that's possible. And that has to happen in, in, in this work. Absolutely. And this framework, the just the five roles and understanding, and again, putting a language to it, hopefully the light bulbs will go on and you'll identify. I'm really curious because as I was reading through these, I'm I'm like, okay, why do I relate to all of them? <laughs> Is that common? Because <laughs> I'm like, I can see that. I can see that. I can see. Well, some of those characteristics, if you notice, they, they almost blur into one another occasionally. And so, okay. <laughs> you know, what we, what we did is we put our clinical experience together and, we tr- and also some previous work, and we tried to delineate and put language to things where Somebody might relate to this piece of it, but we can't turn it into a paragraph characteristic. We'd have split it off. So it's probably that some of those are blending together. And and the other, but although the other, so they're more a composite of the totality of adult children. So when I, when, 
when I gave this, I'm smile, I'm laughing, but it's not funny. When I gave this talk to this small group of recovering sex addicts, they were horrified that their children were all going to burden all this. I said, look, not necessarily. It's just that this is the collective work of what we see. It doesn't mean your kid's going to be burdening every single one of these with equal weights or kind of. Be... So the other issue that's going to happen for both addicts and partners is that when they read this book, they're going to experience some guilt. And so, uh, you know, don't shy away from that. Don't swim in it. Guilt is a measure that you're moving forward and you're being reflective. You have some legitimate regrets. You know, the immense process, the corrective process is a way to work through that, not avoiding it. So the good news and the bad news is this is going to produce some guilt in parents. I think about Go ahead. the men who sat with you, and I'm thinking about their children, whether they're adults or will be adults in the future, and what a gift these men are giving to their children by getting educated and learning this so that they can be part of that process of helping unburden. And so even I'm thinking about all of our listeners who are listening right now, every bit of information and knowledge that you gain is more empowerment. You just use a word, you said a choice maker. And I was like, ooh, like that is such a cool, a cool new role that you could take on as you're shedding some of these other roles of becoming a choice maker. And- I just, I love, and I would, I would love to talk a little bit more for our listeners of maybe some hope of what some of this recovery can look like. So recovery is shedding some of these roles. What else does that look like? Well, identifying the, the, you know, identifying the characteristics and beginning to have some boundaries, right, with your family to, to, because most of these adult children are probably going to have a degree of enmeshment over-involvement with their family. It may indeed, and they also may have avoidance and amputation of their family systems. So it might mean, and I I think your listeners and people need to be careful with this, it it probably means a sit-down with the parents, and which is not the same as a confrontation. So I'm no nobody's recommending, let me be clear with this, I'm not recommending you go grab your parents by the lapels and you shake them and shame them. But it might mean that, look, at this This cost me. I need you to know that. And um, it also means if the family system isn't in recovery, it probably means losses. It means being willing to face grief. And, and the truth is, is that your family may not be fixable. You may be fixable, if I can use that word. And maybe the family or the life that you've created or the partnership you created, you can move forward. And so you learn to visit with your family, but you don't learn to stay with your family. You don't, you're, you're emancipated. So we do that in investment work. That's what we focus on, right? As we focus on emancipation, not amputation. I'm my own man. I'm my own woman. I meet my family on my terms. So there's a crossover there of, of the work we do with enmeshment and adult children. So learning to be your own man, your own woman, and learning to live with mommy and daddy, couldn't give me what I needed then, and they're probably not going to do it now. And you keep going to that dry well, looking for some water, thirsty, and you're going to keep fill, fill, filling your grievance bucket. And and then try to recreate it in your adult life, only to discover that you've created the wrong parts. You know, So I think facing loss is a big one. And rearranging how you visit, how you have relationships, talking about weather and sports, right? You keep it light, you you know, and you just, you visit, you connect in, in the ways that are permitted. And sadly, in addictive systems, the parents are responsible for adjusting to their adult child's emerging needs. You know, my son is 20, almost 21 now. It's not his job to adjust to me. It's my job to adjust, you know, to his emerging life, his new girlfriend, so on and so forth, right? The parents have a responsibility ongoing. The family system is supposed to support each member and and to value each member's presence. And unfortunately, if the system is addictive and in betrayal trauma, they're hunkered down around this stuff and they have their own shame. And when you begin to recover, they view it as a threat. 
So you better be ready for, for some separateness and some losses. That's the big issue. So I hope that helps. But the good news is, is you, you know, recovery means you get a life and you get, you get to be what a choice maker comes from the adult children of alcoholics literature. You get to be a choice maker. You get to create relationships and have systems and families or, or careers or partnerships that feel fulfilling. And, you know, and the sadness doesn't go away. You know, the grief doesn't go away, but you learn to live with it while you continue to move forward. So learning to separate and grieve from your family is the big issue in my mind. Yeah. Be a chain breaker. Chain breaker. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. You can still love your family and be separate, but you're going to have to do it on your terms. Yeah. Otherwise, the system is always more powerful than the individuals. If you stick around long enough in that system, it'll suck you back in. And, you know, you'll be acting in ways that you promised yourself you wouldn't. So you could have rules like I don't stay at my family's home anymore. When I visit over the holidays, I stay in a motel or, you know, pretty soon you just need a different set of boundaries. Right. Yeah. Love it. So powerful. I think I could listen to you all day. (laughs) I did in the training and it was wonderful. And this topic, I'm watching the time tick down and I'm going, no, I want to hear more, but we do have to wrap up. Is there any final messages that you would like to give our, our listeners today? Well, other than to thank them for listening and, and stay open and stay out of your fame and fear and unburden that which isn't yours and take responsibility for what, what is yours. And But be sure you learn the difference. Amen. <laughs> Love it. Very happy to be back on with you guys on Enmeshment. You guys did a great job. It's really nice talking with you. And uh, it was very exciting for me. I'm really jazzed that that we met because I got some nice feedback. And it really is cool how you guys uh, responded to the book. And it's the first real personal excitement that I've had for a while on the book. Well, you're doing beautiful work. Needed beautiful work. So thank you. You're welcome. And thank you for volunteering your time. And I have felt honored to be here. I know our listeners are going to be deeply enriched by this. And and I look forward to having you again. So for our listeners, as always, thank you for joining us this week. And we look forward to seeing you all next week. Are you new to betrayal trauma and have no idea where to really start your healing? Or are you feeling the need for safe support to know that you're not alone in this? Perhaps you're moving towards separation or divorce and have no idea what that looks like or just need a little support while you transition. Starting in mid-April, Choose Recovery Services will be offering free support groups just for you. Spots will be limited and Alana and I will be leading those groups right now. If you are interested or want to be on the wait list, email info at chooserecoveryservices.com or go to the show notes for the link and let the amazing Vanessa know which group you want to join. Choose Recovery Services is here as always to help you choose recovery, choose healing, and choose you. Take care, everybody.